Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. If you would join me in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, I'm going to read that a part of that in just a few moments, but... It's, it's important for us to understand that Jesus' earthly ministry did not stop with the resurrection, which we focused on last week. After the resurrection of Christ, we know that Jesus taught His disciples about God's kingdom for 40 days. I think during that 40 days, they had a completely different perspective. If you remember, prior to the resurrection and ultimately, prior, I guess, prior to the crucifixion, they thought that Jesus was going to establish an earthly kingdom that would out, you know, overthrow the Romans and Israel would become the world force. And I think it's one of the reasons why Judas was so quick to betray Jesus is I think he was trying to force Jesus' hand to, to act because he seemingly was reluctant to. He kept talking about, you know, this kingdom, this kingdom, but it never came to fruition. And so I think in that moment, they begin to understand that Jesus' kingdom is different than they thought. And then when his crucifixion occurred, they lost all hope. They had no life in them whatsoever. And then the resurrection takes place. And I think then they begin to have a different perspective and their eyes, their ears, their hearts were open to the same teaching, but from a different perspective. It was deeper and richer and eternal. And then in Acts chapter 1, we see that Jesus is taken up to heaven. And that begins, brings us to the uh, next section. For those of you who've not been with us, or maybe just uh, in and out a few times, we are trying to not memorize, but to learn the Apostles' Creed. Now, the Apostles' Creed is a, is a capstone and an encapsulation of what we believe and what the church has believed is fundament, fundamental to our faith for the last 2,000 years. And so it's very important for us to recognize what are the fundamentals and not just what do we believe, but why do we believe it? Is there substance to it? And, and does it matter to our, to our everyday life? So I'm going to ask you, as we are working through this, if you would go ahead and stand with me. And we're going to remind ourselves of that 2,000-year-old creed this morning as we begin together. Now, we're going to come to a part where we say that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Just remember, it's okay. This was written before the Roman Catholic Church. All right? So the word Catholic means universal or global body of believers. By saying that, we are saying that we believe that God works through the local body of believers and that the local body of believers are tied to every other believer on the face of the earth. Okay? So we definitely confess that this morning. Just follow along with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven, and He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and He will come to judge the living and the dead." I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. So if you remember, Jesus is, uh, has resurrected. We talked about that last week. We're not going to go into much detail about that today, but when on the day of uh, of this, well, what we celebrate as Easter, Resurrection Sunday, there was a, a group of women who went early to the tomb to finish the preparation of burial for Jesus, hoping to have somebody roll the stone back or whatever to be able to, uh, to finish the process because even though they had been taught about the resurrection, they didn't know what it meant. They were fully expecting to see dead Jesus on Sunday morning. And so when they get there, the stone's already rolled back. Nobody is inside. And Mary Magdalene especially, she, she is just uh, 
beside herself. Runs back and gets Peter and John. Tells all the disciples he's not there. Peter and John take off. John stops at the door of the tomb and Peter just bumbles right in. They recognize the same thing. John is a little bit more curious and a little bit more aware of his surroundings. He notices the body is gone. The clothes are there. The napkin that covered Jesus' face was actually folded nicely. It wasn't just empty. Uh, but somebody had taken the time to fold that thing. I mean, this is King Jesus, right? So uh, Jesus is not there. And Mary, uh, Peter and John are in a hurry to get back to tell others. And so they leave. Mary Magdalene is just pondering these things and doesn't know what to make of it. And all of a sudden, there's the gardener. Now, don't mistake how often Jesus is in the garden, right? Jesus is about restoring all things back and reeling us back to the Garden of Eden, right? Taking us back to a place of reconciliation with the Father. And so it would make sense that the first time we see the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we would see the one who walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, right? And so here he is representing this as a gardener. She's like, he's a gardener. And when Jesus begins to speak and reveals himself to her, he says a really strange thing that perplexes us. He says to her, get off of me. <laughs> now that's what he would say in English. In, in, uh, uh, in Greek, it's a little bit different. Uh, in fact, in John chapter 20, verse 17 is where we find this. If you want to just jot that down, go back and look later. But Jesus, and, and, and it's... It's kind of like a mother who hasn't seen her, her son or perhaps thinks that she has lost her son either to death or to you know, abandonment or whatever, or the picture of the prodigal son with the father. Uh, it's just like this just constant embrace, incredibly appropriate. Don't misunderstand. But when Jesus is standing there, she recognizes it's Jesus. She's given up all hope. What Jesus says is, stop touching me. I mean, she's just like pawing at him. You can imagine this just grabbing, 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 never going to let go. And Jesus says, don't cling to me. I have not yet ascended to my Father. Now that's very important because what Jesus is really saying is, don't get satisfied with me being back here in the flesh because there's even greater things to come. That's what he is saying in the original language. English is a little bit abrupt when he says, don't cling to me. What he is saying is, you're holding on to the wrong thing. Better things are coming. Don't get satisfied with this. Because I'm going to ascend back to the Father. And so, we have Jesus then in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 20 of John. He says, he says go back and tell my brothers. Now that's important because Jesus has not referred to them as brothers. He's called them children. He's called them friends. He tells them that they are one another's brothers. But after the resurrection and after satisfying the relationship, the wrath of God from the Father, Jesus calls those who betrayed Him brothers. Now that's important because if you remember, just a couple of days ago, when Jesus needed to count on His brothers, they were bouncing through the woods running away. You remember? And when he's hanging on the cross, there's only one there, John, that's standing beside his mom. All the rest of them are hiding. He looks at Peter from way across the marketplace, and Peter is over there denying that he even ever knew Jesus' name. And the first thing that Jesus said is, go tell my brothers. You talk about forgiveness. I mean, this is such grace that the first thing is, there's better things coming than this, and I forgive unconditionally. Jesus' earthly ministry did not end with the resurrection. You remember this morning I opened up my Bible. I thought it was interesting. You know where my Bible opened up? The book of Jonah. Some of you will think that's funny. It's just like it's got a habit of opening up to Jonah. We spend a lot of time in in Jonah, but I thought got to thinking about uh, Jonah uh, this past week, and I thought, you know, Jonah when and we talked about this several months ago, but when Jonah decides to disobey God, he goes down. Remember, he goes down to the sea. He goes down into the boat. He's going down to Tarshish. He goes down into the water, and then he goes down into the fish. You remember? Down, down, down. And then he prays this prayer, and then everything is up, up, up. From there on, he ends up up on the mountain overlooking all of Nineveh. Remember the story? Down and then up. 
You remember how long Jonah preaches to the Ninevites about God's restoring them and reconciling them? Forty days. So when Jesus leaves heaven down, comes to earth, goes to the dead down, Jesus' earthly ministry is down, down, down. And then when He resurrects, it's back And then it's the ascension where He is raised up. And then it's ultimately seated at the right hand of the Father. That's the ultimate up. But do you remember how long He taught His followers about restoration and the kingdom that God was wanting to restore? Forty days. Remember Jesus said, just like it was for Jonah, so the Son of Man will be three days in the ground. Incredible parallel there between the two. For Luke, though, the ascension was such a significant moment. Now, Luke wrote two books of the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, but he also wrote the book of Acts. And and the, the ascension of Jesus is the episode that Luke mentions in both books. He ends the Gospel of Luke with Jesus being lifted, and he begins the book of Acts with Jesus being lifted and ascending back to heaven. So it's very, very important. I'm going to begin reading here in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, that's the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when He was taken up after He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs appearing to them for 40 days, during 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John the Baptist with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, listen, this was a question that they asked him every day, seems like. Every time he taught, hey, is it now? Is it now? Is it now? I mean, they were looking for this kingdom because I think they thought they were going to be the right-hand mans in the kingdom, right? The treasurer and the leaders and all of the, the people who, the, the, the political party that would follow King Jesus. They were going to get all the accolades. And so constantly arguing about who was going to be the prime minister in the kingdom and who's going to be the greatest and who's going to sit at the right hand and who's going to this and who's going to that. And then at the resurrection, they start talking about it. And now... Jesus is about to ascend, and what do they start talking about? Is it now you're going to restore your kingdom? And here's what Jesus says. Verse 7, He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but, in other words, this but is very important. It is not for you to know times and seasons, but it is for you to know this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It's interesting to me how they respond to that. It's... uh, especially in the book of, of Luke. We'll talk about that in just a few moments. But Jesus, when He's teaching them, they are amazed at His teaching. When Jesus starts talking about the crucifixion, they start talking about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. When Jesus is actually crucified, they're arrested. They're running through the woods. When He's crucified, they're absent altogether. For those three days, and then even after the resurrection, they're hiding in an upper room with the doors locked. Terrified. They do not understand. But it's after the ascension of Jesus Christ that their entire perspective... A lot of times you hear people say, it wasn't until the resurrection that the disciples really got it. I don't believe that that's true. 
I believe it was after the ascension that the disciples got it because we don't recognize much change in their life until the ascension of Jesus Christ. Up until this moment, they're just constantly scratching their head. What did he say? What did he mean? Where did he go? But it's after the ascension that everything changed. In fact, if you look at the gospel's telling of the ascension, at the ascension of Jesus Christ, it says that they, after the ascension, they worshipped Him. He was taken. They worshipped Him. They traveled back to Jerusalem. Luke chapter 24 says, with great joy. This is new for them. They have been empty, depressed, hopeless, purposeless, fearful, locked in a room. But after they saw Jesus lifted into heaven... They were filled with great joy and worshipped Him. And it says they maintained a regular presence in the temple worshipping the Lord daily. They couldn't get enough. Everything. You remember when Jesus was crucified, what did they do? Jesus appeared back to them. What were they doing? They were back to regular everyday life, right? They knew He was resurrected, but they were back to everyday life. They went back to fishing. Taking up their fishing poles and their fishing nets Take back up their offering plates, doing what come natural to them. But after the resurrection, they abandoned everything, and it was full-on Jesus people from then on. Everything changed. Everything changed after the, the ascension. That's what makes it so much different. A lot of Christians see the resurrection as the moment. That's the one we focus on, and we should, because without the resurrection, the ascension is meaningless. The resurrection is paramount important. But a lot of folks focus on the crucifixion and the resurrection and say, I have made my decision to follow Jesus. Check. But if you miss the ascension, you will miss your purpose for everyday living. That's where we find joy. That's where we find hope. And that's where we find purpose is in the ascension of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about that just a little bit today. So during those 40 days, John 14 and 17, uh, Jesus begins to teach the disciples about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, what that's going to look like. And so when they see the culmination of this, they know exactly what to do. So what Jesus is pretty much telling them is, you're not losing me, but I'm going to be with you in a completely different way through my Spirit. And so this teaching about the Holy Spirit, when they see Jesus lifted, they begin to realize all of the benefits. So that's what I want to talk about for just a few moments are the benefits that Jesus gives us because of His ascension back into heaven. And I would say the ascension is one of the most underrated things that Jesus does and is probably the most significant for our everyday life. We cannot dare miss it. All right, so... We've already looked and read Acts chapter 1, but there's one particular word I want you to look at in verses 1 and 2. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus... What's that word? All that Jesus began. That is such a significant word because the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the beginning. The resurrection is not the end of His earthly ministry. It's the beginning of His earthly ministry for us. He began to do and to teach. If you remember that the, that the book of Acts is actually the acts or the work of the early church, the apostles. It's the acts of the evidence of the risen Lord Jesus by the Holy Spirit through the apostles into the church, into the future. We are still in the book of Acts. These acts are from heaven through His people, empowered by His Spirit for the accomplishment of God's purpose. Jesus Christ proves in His ascension that He is the head of the church. It all belongs to Him. And that is important. So when Jesus, well, last week we talked about Jesus descending to the dead, taking the keys of death, hell, and the grave, and, 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 be, and reigning victorious over these three areas of life, which the proof of His victory is the resurrection, that it was enough. 
So Jesus has the keys, and if you remember, he looked at Peter when he talked about the establishment of the church. Peter was not the first pope. Peter was a representative of followers of Jesus Christ in the church age, which we are. And he told Peter, he said, who men say I am? He says, you're Christ, Son of the living God. He says that the church of Jesus Christ will be built upon this statement. And then he talks to Peter about keys. The keys of the kingdom are going to be given to the church. And what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. These are very important keys because Jesus obtained keys when he descended into the dead and is victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And you know what Jesus does in his ascension? He hands the keys over to the church and says, Continue my work. Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. This is a powerful, powerful transition. Transitions his authority to the local church. That's, this is why the New Testament calls the church the body of Christ. So what is the church supposed to be doing? The work of Jesus Christ. The work of Christ. We are supposed to be, we say, well, what was the work of Jesus? Jesus said, I didn't say anything that God the Father didn't give me to say. I didn't do anything that the Father didn't give me to do. The goal of Jesus Christ, how did he tell us to pray? And pray this, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? We as the church are supposed to establish the kingdom of heaven here. We are to be walking citizens and ambassadors of King Jesus in every community in which we go, every conversation in which we go, every relationship that we go, everywhere we go, we are representatives of a different kingdom. Jesus establishes that in His ascension. When Jesus ascended and He sat down at the Father's right hand, here's the second thing that happened. It was absolute proof that the Father was satisfied with the life death, and resurrection of Jesus, and it confirmed to the apostles that the final payment for sin had finally been made. In fact, so much so that within the next few decades, the writer of Hebrews said this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So the prophecies that God gave in the Old Testament proves that God is at work restoring us. The incarnation proved that Jesus was from the Father. His teaching authority proved that He was from God. His sinless life proved that He alone was worthy, the unique Son of God, to atone for our sins on the cross. His death on the cross proved that He had victory over sin. His burial proved that He had victory over death and hell. His resurrection proved that He had victory over the Father's wrath and all, over all of Satan's accusations. And His ascension proves that He is eternally sovereign. And it was all enough, one proof after another proof, that Jesus is the only way to the Father. The next benefit is Jesus' ascension is His heavenly enthronement as King. I want you to notice that every time the ascension is spoken of in the New Testament, this is a passive thing that happens to Jesus. If you remember, Jesus charged to earth to live. He charged to Jerusalem, to the cross. He charged to the dead to get the keys. But here, He is taken up into heaven on a cloud. Which proves that it is the Father who is bringing him back to himself, which is like a summoning back into his presence because he has satisfied everything that keeps us away from the Father. Jesus took on our sin. He was righteous. He became our unrighteousness, even to the death of the cross. 
the very fact that that Jesus who took my sin and shame is able to go back into the presence of the Father is proof that His death was enough. And Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God. Now, if it would be one thing for Jesus to just vanish, Jesus has been known to do this. Remember one time they wanted to put a crown on His head? He was gone. They didn't know where He went. And then even after the resurrection, He's walking on the road to Emmaus with two of His followers, and He starts teaching them, and they finally realize who He is, and as soon as they realize who He is, He's gone again. Just vanishes. Now, that would be pretty powerful. But if you're dealing with a vanishing Jesus, you're always waiting for a reappearing Jesus. But when you're standing there in Jerusalem and you watch Jesus ascend to heaven, there is no doubt where He went. Why did Jesus have to ascend this way on a cloud when He could have just vanished? The same reason that we coronate a king for a public testimony. It's very important for us to know where Jesus is going and what He's going to be doing and every prophecy that He fulfills in this way. So in this uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples... Nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is one that cannot, shall not be destroyed. It's the proof, perfect proof that Jesus is seated at the right hand of power. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, it says, Jesus conquered and sat down with His Father on His throne where He receives unending praise. This just means that there is no threat whatsoever to the kingship of Jesus Christ. Jesus will reign at God's right hand until all enemies are subdued under His feet. Psalm 110 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then that is quoted at least four times in the New Testament. This is how important the ascension of Jesus Christ is. You remember when Stephen, who was one of the first deacons, is preaching to all of the religious leaders and they get so angry at him. He is talking about King Jesus and the resurrection and he's talking to them about restoration and giving them all sorts of hope. But they don't want hope. And so they start throwing stones at Stephen and they're executing him in public. And just before Stephen dies, he gives a last testimony and he says... That he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father to receive his spirit. Powerful confirmation that where Jesus ascended, Jesus still is receiving us to himself. So God's kingdom that he began in the book of Genesis in Eden. Kingdom that was lost because of sin. God gave us a partial kingdom here that we can experience only veiled. But when Jesus ascended back to heaven, He was inaugurated as the King of the kingdom of God Himself. The ascended Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to His people. This is one we focus on most of the time. Jesus said in John chapter 14, It is good that I go. Because if I go, I'm going to send one to you. The Comforter, the Holy Spirit. Now they were aware of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit they knew was at work, but not in the hearts of men. And so in a, in a, in a very unique way, what happens is, Jesus is, well, if you wanted to spend time with Jesus, you'd have to go to the manger, to the temple, to Jerusalem, to Galilee, to the garden, to the cross, to the tomb. You'd have to go where Jesus is. And He was the Lord, but very limited in His scope and sequence. But when Jesus ascended back to the Father, He was able to distribute the Holy Spirit out. It's kind of like a, an umbrella shoot. You know, you raise the thing up and it just covers it all. This is what happens with the ascension. Jesus is the King, but now He is coronated as the King of all kings. And all authority was already His, but now all the earth knows it. 
And the rule of Jesus has now spread out far and near, and He has made every one of us, every one of us, little Christs around the world. And He has distributed the Holy Spirit into every one of us who believes. Sends His Holy Spirit. In Joel chapter 2, in fact, Peter's very first message when he preaches in Acts chapter 2, he begins to quote Joel chapter 2 verse 28 when he says, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And that's what Jesus does. In fact, the empty tomb would have been sufficient, but Jesus walked among them for 40 days to confirm the power of that message. And we take the apostles' word for it. We're not Christians because of what Jesus said. We wouldn't know it if it weren't for the apostles' testimony. They were the witnesses. They were the witnesses. We believe their witness about what they saw and how they lived, the transformation of their life. Probably my, well, I can't say the favorite because they're all interchangeable, but when Jesus ascended, He began His intercessory work. Which, which means this, in John chapter, one, or John chapter 2, verse 1, it talks that Jesus is our mediator. You know, Satan has a name. That's, that's actually a title, Satan. Lucifer is his name. Satan is his title. It means the accuser, specifically the accuser of the brethren. Which means Satan now has one job. We talked about this last week. Satan only can do one thing. You remember what Satan does? He says, boo. He jumps out behind trees and says, boo. I mean, he is fangless. He is fingerless. Uh, he, he has no territory whatsoever. But we're terrified of him for some reason. We're terrified of him because we don't see Jesus high and lifted up. That's why we're terrified of the enemies of Satan. Satan has no territory. All he has is a boo, right? But here's what he'll do. He'll get right down in your shoulder and whisper into your ear and tell you everything that you've done. My favorite way of putting it is, he will sit on your shoulder and he will say, nobody will ever know. And then you do it, and then he'll say, everybody's going to find out. And he'll make you live that way for the rest of your life. Guilt and shame. Just his words. His words have no power when your eyes are on Jesus. But he's the accuser of you and he stands in heaven and gives report and he's constantly telling the Father all the terrible things that you've done and Jesus is standing there saying, but he's mine, but he's mine. Oh, I paid the price for that already. Oh, that's already... You wouldn't go to the store and buy things four or five times. You've already paid for it. He's the accuser of the brethren and so Jesus, King Jesus, not just Jesus... King Jesus is our advocate, our mediator, who stands in the right hand of power of the Father Almighty and every accusation that Satan hurls at the Father, Jesus is advocating for you. And He's not only doing it spiritually, He's doing it in the flesh too because Jesus still bears in His body the marks of His earthly life. For all eternity, Jesus didn't go back to the state He was in before He came. Jesus is still in the state. He is still in the flesh. But glorified. That's why he told Mary, don't cling to me. I'm not glorified yet. And I don't know what Jesus looks like. I don't know what glorified Jesus looks like. But scripture says, whatever he is, that's what we'll be one day. Because he's advocating for us. He still bears the marks in his body so that he can be our kinsman redeemer. So that he can say to the Father who does not know flesh, does not know the temptation of sin, but Jesus can advocate for us. That's why He qualifies to be our mediator, to be our advocate. And Jesus will never change. Everything that Jesus does now has a cosmic scope to it. I mean, it affects all eternity. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22 says, Now that He has gone into heaven, He is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers subject to Him. Now that He has ascended, these things are all under His feet. He sympathizes with our struggles and He also promises to do whatever we ask for His glory and in His name. In John chapter 4, you, I know you've probably heard this. Some of you have heard it. In John chapter 4, Jesus begins by saying, 
you know, uh, I go to prepare a place for you. If I don't go, you, you know, the, the whole thing. People talk about, you know, our mansions in my father's house are many dwelling places. And I go to, you know, God, God's ready. He's got, he's got their mansion ready for them. That's why they, they like, like Jesus is up there building mansions. I mean, oh, I got this one done. You can call them home now. I mean, he's tirelessly working for, for your mansion. I don't think that's how it works. Jesus preparing a place for you. He's telling you there's lots of room up here for all whosoever will come. His preparing a place for us is His intercessory work for us. He is clearing the way so that we can have direct access to the Father. And that happened on Ascension Day. Preparing a place for us. That where He is, there we may be too. As long as we see Jesus high and lifted up, He's going to draw us to Himself He's going to enable us. He's going to empower us. He's going to embolden us. He's going to lift us up as well because as He is lifting us to Himself, we are lifting those around us up as well. Everything that we do now, when we see Jesus in His rightful place of power and we recognize that He is sovereign over all things, nothing, nothing escapes His sovereignty. If you're not careful, you begin. There's a huge teaching now in the church, dualism. It's, it's not just in the church, it's all around the world, which is this eternal conflict between good and evil. We call these two sides good and evil, and it's, it's this conflict back and forth. It's like this cosmic chess match. Satan does something and God counters, and then God does something and Satan counters. It's like for all eternity, there's just constant. And then one day, Jesus will finally checkmate. Ah, finally won. Ah, no, no, listen. There is no threat to King Jesus. There is no cosmic chess match taking place. There is no battle between good and evil. There are only those who look at Jesus and those who do not look to Jesus. That's the only options. All enemies are already His footstool. But when you take your eyes off Jesus, you open yourself up to the kingdoms of this world. But these two worlds live parallel to one another. And King Jesus gives you the opportunity to choose which one in every moment you choose to live in. Bound by the kingdoms of this world, which will all be defeated. This, what this means is, is that we have the opportunity that everything we think and everything we do and every attitude that we have can have a kingdom purpose to it. Everything we do can contribute to His kingdom coming and His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Every thought captive to Christ. Every thought gives way to helping people find and follow Jesus. But when we take our eyes off the ascended King of Kings, we fall prey to the temptations of the accuser. He's got nothing but a boo, but the only thing, only thing that he's got is he wants, Satan wants to distract you from seeing King Jesus. And he's going to put busyness in your life. He's going to put ambitions in your pathway. He's going to put shiny, bright lights. He's going to make things look so good and you're going to, oh, that's pretty. Oh, I wish I had more of that. Oh, if I only had him or her. Oh, if this and if that. And all of a sudden, you're looking at your calendar. You're looking at your wallet. You're looking at your mirror. And you completely lose King Jesus. And then, you're just helping yourself. And it's an ending pursuit. That's how Satan will try to accuse you. When you take your eyes off Jesus, he's going to be there to accuse you. Your vision will be blurred. So this morning, I just want to encourage you to know this. That there is no end to Jesus Christ's rule. He does rule. And He will rule forevermore. And there is no end to Satan's accusations against you until that final day. We'll talk about that next week. Do not fall prey to the accuser's distractions. Your life will be filled with drama. And when your life is filled with drama, you will only begin to focus on yourself. How does this affect me? How does this make me feel? How does this make me look? What do others think? 
You cannot think that way and see Jesus high and lifted up. Well, we, like the first disciples, when we experience Jesus' exaltation and His enthronement for all eternity, we can't help but have full joy. Listen, I don't care what this world throws at you, what you think, how you act, or how you're treated. Everything pales in comparison to see Jesus at the right hand of power. Everything pales in comparison to that. So that means that count it all joy, brothers, when you go through various trials because you can still see King Jesus. Joy is for today. Hope is for tomorrow. And whatever you're worried about tomorrow, whatever check you have to write or whatever conversation you have to have, as long as King Jesus is the right hand of power, you have no fear. Because He will never leave you and He will never forsake you. And as proof of that, He places His Spirit inside of you that testifies that you belong to Him. What a great gift in the ascension. And if you have joy for today and you can have hope for tomorrow, then you don't have to worry about tomorrow. You can live with purpose and meaning, which simply is this. The church of Jesus Christ wins. We have purpose and meaning because of what Jesus has afforded us. His Holy Spirit will empower us. Whatever deficits you have in your own personalities or your own temperaments are all substantiated by or supported by the holy work of the Holy Spirit. And He satisfies. His grace is enough. He expects us to walk in obedience. So I encourage you, boy, we better see Jesus. We can't see Him ascending. But we can believe the testimony of those who did. They died for it. In fact, in just a couple of chapters, I won't go into the whole story, but they were about to throw Peter and, and John into prison. And what did, what did Peter say? We cannot help but talk about the things that we've seen and heard. And I wonder what it is that's so important in our life that would silence us in talking about the sovereignty of Jesus Christ who's seated at the right hand of power. Be joyful, brothers and sisters. Have hope and live as if Christ is working His kingdom in this world through you. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the truth of your word. And we're so grateful that we have the hope of not only the resurrection, but the ascension. And you have paved the way for us as the first fruits. And so I pray that we would constantly make it our lifelong endeavor to see you high and lifted up. That we may be drawn to you and draw others to you through our, our words, our actions. So Lord, this morning, I just pray that you would help us to, to see you even more clearly. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Will you stand with me, please? Maybe you're here this morning and you need to make a recommitment. Maybe you've taken your eyes off Jesus. You're a Christian, but your life is not ordered around King Jesus. It's ordered around yourself, your familiarity, your comfort, your conveniences. Maybe today you just need to say, Lord, put, I want to put my eyes back on you. Maybe, maybe you're here today and maybe you've never trusted Jesus Christ. I can tell you there is no joy apart from Him. John chapter 14, Jesus even said, My peace I leave with you. Not the peace that the world brings do I leave, but my peace. Don't settle for the world's peace because it will crumble in the end. It's temporary. There's no end to the joy of King Jesus. No end to the hope of Jesus. And no end to the purpose of Jesus as long as we live. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.